Hello, everybody. Continuing my semi-regular look at the amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are the Palace of Glittering Delights episodes issue... issue episodes issues. Issues episodes. You see, you script this shit, you try and be professional about it, and you still make an almighty cock-up. Now, if I was being paid, I would not have made that cock-up. Or, I would go back and retake it and give some semblance of uh, an image of respectability and professionalism but i ain't so i'm not gonna the previous number episode the previous episode numbers in this series are 38 40 42 44 46 49 52 93 94 108 113 118 125 and 131, covering Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man, issue 82. Which means, for those that understand how numbers work, that today we'll be starting with Amazing Spider-Man issue 83, cover dated April of 1970, but actually the first issue of a new decade, arriving on newsstands January 13th, 1970. The spectacular cover by John Romita starts the decade out strong. Spider-Man leaps over a desk as hoodlums and thugs surround him, all brandishing weapons. Behind the futuristic desk stands a man with slipped-back greying hair, wearing a yellow cape and green tunic. This is the schemer. The cover promises that this issue will have Spider-Man tangle with this new supervillain and a deadly old-time enemy. Wow, that's pretty enticing stuff right there. The story is simply called The Schema, and is a phantasmagoric production of Stan Lee, writer, John Romita and Mickey DeMio, illustrators, and Sam Rosen, letterer. The action starts from the off. The Kingpin's disappearance has left a power vacuum, and there's a new pretender to the throne. The Schema. He tells his men that he needs to usurp the kingpin, attacking his holdings and jobs and preventing him from regaining his foothold. He managed to accrue men, and he tells them that this will be a war using guerrilla tactics, waged by a man named the Schemer for a reason. The goons seem nonplussed that he doesn't seem to have the first idea what to do should Spider-Man interfere, but... They can't be too bright, as they need the schema's PowerPoint presentation to be reminded what the kingpin looks like. By pure chance, Spider-Man's interference is in the next scene. He happens to be at an intersection just as the schema's men put the bag on one of the kingpin's delivery trucks, really a front for illegal shipping. Spider-Man sets up his camera and makes the scene, roughing up some of the toughs and overhearing the name the schema. After taking his photos, Spider-Man leaves. He doesn't round up anyone for the police or web anyone to a lamppost. He just cuts out and then pats himself on the back for getting out whilst the getting was good. Sure, Peter, let's ignore all the goons who were just firing weapons in a street full of innocent bystanders and, you know, that you let get away. I mean, as long as you made some money... That's okay, right? As long as you're okay, Peter, everyone else can screw off, right? Okay. Is that where we're at now? Okay. Still, Peter is worried about the possibility of a turf war and mulls over the last time he saw the kingpin. The crime lord was zooming away in a Cadillac that was seemingly driven by a... (gasps) A woman! Peter seems most amused by this. A woman, of all things! A woman! Ha! Imagine a woman being able to drive. Gosh, they'll be giving them the vote next. Imagine if the kingpin had a wife or girlfriend, Peter muses to himself and then strides away, feeling that this is still nothing to do with him whatsoever. 
This is, of course, from the Stanley Book of Big Clichés, because as sure as eggs is eggs, if Peter thinks this is bugger all to do with him, you can bet it will become his problem before the end of the issue. And sure enough, the Kingpin does have a wife, Vanessa, and she's a tad annoyed with Kingy as he's kept the son's supposed death from her. Kingpin did this because it's lies, all lies, as his ego refuses to accept his son's death. Vanessa believes this is due to the son, who will be named Richard, learning his father is a gangster on a par with Tony Soprano. The argument leads the Kingpin to come out of retirement. I'm not quite sure what he was retired from. The last time we saw him, he was trying to steal the petrified tablet, but nothing happened there to make him go into hiding. Over at the Bugle, Peter is having a hard time convincing jolly Jonah Jameson to buy his photographs. Jonah tells him pictures of Spider-Man fighting penny anti-thugs are two a penny, and he doesn't want them. Peter says he'll sell them to the Globe, and Jonah relents and offers Peter five bucks a picture. I suspect Jonah just didn't want the Globe having them. Peter leaves, ignoring Robbie and Betty and counting his cash, which seems to be three green bills, which I assume means Jonah bought the three photos in his hands on page seven at $5 a photo, giving Peter $15, which is nearly $100 in today's money. Peter isn't terribly happy, as he needs this money for Gwen's birthday and May's medical bills. He visits Doc Bromwell, but Bromwell tells him most of May's bills are covered by something called Medicaid. Peter is delighted by this news, as it means he can spend all his money on Gwen. It's not all good news, though, as May still needs round-the-clock care. Perhaps, and I'm just throwing this out, though, if Peter hadn't given the good lady a heart attack thanks to a misplaced web dummy, she'd be okay. We cut to the schemer. He likes speaking about himself as the schemer. He has one of the Kingpin's goons chirruping like a canary, see, about the Kingpin's plans, largely because the Kingpin hasn't been seen in months, and I presume this squealer hasn't been paid. You can't buy loyalty. At the airport, Gwen, Peter, Harry and Murray Jane are saying goodbye to Flash. Again. I swear this guy's on more leave than he's in country. How can we miss him when he won't go away? It must be chilly in New York, as Harry and Peter are wrapped up warmly in snug overcoats, scarves and upturned collars, whilst Gwen has an adorable Father Christmas outfit on. I'm not kidding, she's dressed in a red coat with white furry trims. Mary Jane cares not for the weather, and is attired in a skin-tight mini-dress. Peter shakes Flash's hand, and Gwen pats him on the cheek. Mary Jane kisses him, like she's his last date as a way of showing up Gwen. Gwen retaliates, planting a smacker on Flash that causes his head to spontaneously sprout white circles. Flash is stunned. Peter, slightly annoyed and jealous. Gwen says that was the point, and Harry seems miffed Mary Jane acted like she enjoyed it. What do you mean acted? She teasingly replies. There's a lot to unpack here. Mary Jane initially kisses Flash to upstage Gwen and therefore get under her skin, I suspect, due to the fact that she's dating Peter. Mary Jane couldn't give a flying fig about Harry. Gwen retaliates, kissing Flash in such a way that he looks like he could fly to Nam by flapping his arms. The implication being Gwen is a much better kisser than MJ. Gwen gets a pass claiming she did it to make Peter jealous. Mary Jane makes no such claim to Harry, actually going so far as to rub salt in the wound, stating that she actually enjoyed it. Either she did this because she wanted to kiss Flash in front of her boyfriend, or she did this to wind up Gwen out of jealousy over her and Peter. Mary Jane does not come off well, whichever way you pass it. As Flash takes off, Peter wonders, which is worse? Staying behind while other guys are doing the fighting, or fighting in a war that nobody wants against an enemy you don't even hate? A difficult question, Peter. They leave in Harry's car, but Gwen and Peter pass on the chance to go and watch Easy Rider with them, preferring to spend some quality time alone with each other. All Gwen's idea. As it should be noted, I want the lad all to my greedy little self tonight, she says. What on earth could her intentions have been? 
This also allows us to partially date the story. Easy Rider came out in July of 1969, and the weather implies this is winter in New York, meaning either Easy Rider was still playing six months after it came out, or it was an out-of-the-way theatre the penniless students were attending. As they walk away from Harry and Mary Jane, Peter is about to speak to Gwen, when a speeding truck is sideswiped by a passing car. The truck careens out of control, straight into Gwen and Peter. What follows is the best scene in the comic. Clearly evoking Amazing Spider-Man issue 33, it's still wonderfully Stanley Spider-Man-esque melodrama at its best. It ekes out every last emotional beat. Magnificent stuff. Peter manages to brace himself between the truck and Gwen, but Gwen is hurt and unconscious. Peter has managed to brace the truck with a nearby parking meter, and he then tosses a spider tracer at the car that caused the accident as it speeds away. Being Peter, he's very concerned about his secret identity, but he manages to cover very well, with the ambulance crew pointing out how lucky they both were that the parking meter prevented the truck from killing them. After checking Gwen is okay, he leaves her at the hospital to find the car and spends a day lecturing us about the importance of reporting crime. No, he literally does that. This isn't a standard Peter Parker monologue. This is directly addressed to the reader when he says, there's always someone who'll be hurt and you never know when that someone could be someone you love. This was a public service announcement on behalf of Marvel Comics. Spider-Man tracks the sedan to a building and then to a room on the top floor. I love the idea that this is a normal office block with people going about their regular business, but this one room is the schemer's lure. <laughs> that does, does amuse me. Not everyone can have a sprawling hideout underneath Park Avenue, I guess. Spider-Man pulls off a neat trick here. He tosses a web ball through one window, and then when the crooks are facing the other way, he leaps in through the other window. Smart boy, Peter Parker. The schemer cleverly deduces that it must be Spider-Man, ignoring all the other heroes in New York, but perhaps being self-aware enough to realise whose comic he's in. A confined area gunfight follows, very well laid out by Ramita. Spider-Man takes the piss out of the schemer's propensity for pomposity and his bad dialogue, and he has no problems taking out the hoods. The schemer is ready for him, though. He has a desk! Not just any desk! A desk that looks like the one Captain White sat at in Captain Scarlet, being curved and full of gadgets. One such gadget is a hydraulic press, just in case the schemer ever wanted to make a grilled cheese sandwich. It's no match for Spider-Man, and although Stan tries to once again derive some tension from the moment, Spider-Man manages to destroy the press relatively easily. The resulting backfire of sparks and circuitry allows the schemer to get away, abandoning his men, who are rendered unconscious in the explosion. This confrontation inadvertently sums up all the problems with the schemer as a villain. He's a nobody. His hangers-on are all just thugs with guns. He has no powers himself. His, his gadgets may cut it against normal people, but against Spider-Man they're useless, and he, he has no personality. Spider-Man is right to take the piss. This guy speaks in tedious, cliched, stock bad-guy phrases, and his motivation to take down the kingpin, not particularly well realised. Hopefully there's more to this guy, and hopefully the next few issues will reveal what that is. With this all wrapped up, Spider-Man presumably calls the police to arrest these guys, and Peter returns to Gwen. She's not best pleased he's not been around for, like, three minutes, and asks her father to escort Peter to the door. George is sympathetic, telling Peter she'll see things differently in the morning. A despondent Peter inadvertently blurts out, I should be used to people never knowing the truth about me, right in front of George Stacy. Well done, Peter. George leaps on the statement, and Peter has to run cover, telling George he meant to say, I wish I could make her see how I really feel. Peter pulls up the collar of his coat and walks off into the snow. The ending is beautiful, and the soap opera melodrama regarding Gwen and Peter simply brilliant, but the scheme is a wet rag of a villain, and the Spider-Man stuff rather rote. Clearly Stan is heading towards some kind of big development in the Gwen-Peter-George story, but what that development is will shock you! Well, 
Maybe not. Clickbait was a couple of years away from when this comic was published. Issue 84 has another stunning Gramita cover, with Spidey battling the Kingpin in an everyday living room. Ramita manages to make even a mundane setting like this exciting and vibrant. The Kingpin Strikes Back now credits John's Romita and Buscema alongside Jim Mooney as illustrators and Stan as author. Spider-Man hangs around, literally, reading the Bugle, which is apparently offering five grand for the schema. Curiously, it doesn't say who's offering the money. It also doesn't say what for the schema. Information pertaining to his whereabouts, his capture, his shoe size... Even Spider-Man thinks this is odd, as there is no mention of this being a police reward, only a P.O. Box number. Hmm. Whatever, Spider-Man decides that he could really use that money, and sets about locating the villain. I'm curious as to why there's a five grand reward on him. He didn't do anything last issue to indicate that the authorities even knew about him. But again, this is Stan, seeding future events. Clever. As Spider-Man swings off, his copy of the Bugle vanishes. I do hope he disposed of it responsibly, as I have no time for litterbugs. Swinging through the snow, he sees a bus stuck. Spider-Man tries to help, but the bus driver accuses him of hijacking the bus. How typically Spider-Man. Spidey decides to help his rotten reputation by attacking random people on the street because he thinks they may be thugs. In this case, he happens upon an undercover cop who claims that Spidey just blew his cover. I don't really see how this is the case. Spider-Man attacks him in a deserted alleyway, and surely he could turn this to his advantage in the underworld by saying he stood up to Spider-Man. Either way, this is not shaping up to be Spider-Man's best day. I have to admit to a childish delight in seeing him complain about his mistake being a boner, though. I thought only Gwen gave him those. For some reason, Spider-Man's Spider-Sense leads into an apartment over a bar and grill where Spider-Man recognises a sleeping man as one of the schemer's hoods from the fight yesterday. This is not how Spider-Sense works. In a nice piece of continuity, the guy is wearing an eye patch, and if you flip back an issue, sure enough, he's there in the fight scene, so fair play for whoever it was who plotted that out. Spider-Man gets exactly nowhere with Eyepatch Guys, who tells Spidey that the schemer changes his hideout every day, possibly explaining why he was in a nondescript office block in the last issue. Spider-Man leaves the guy webbed to his wall. The cold, the snow, and the lack of any decent leads make Spidey call it a night, and he changes back to Peter Parker. The art in these opening pages was lovely. I always like seeing Spider-Man swing around a snowy New York as I feel it looks cool and romantic, even though in reality it'd probably be miserable and bitterly cold. Peter wonders if he should go and see Gwen, despite the lateness of the hour, as he's missing her terribly. He drops by, and both Gwen and George are still up, so George lets Peter in for a chat and some cocoa. Oddly, when Peter dressed, he just put his rather conspicuous yellow coat on over his Spider-Man outfit. Yet, when he arrives at the Stacy's, he's wearing a brown turtleneck underneath it. Gwen, however, is having serious doubts about being in a relationship with a man who is always disappearing and won't tell her why. She's also curious as to why Peter wasn't hurt at all in the crash. Interestingly, it's George who covers for Peter, mentioning the parking meter that luckily saved their lives. George knows I'm sure of it. He's far too sharp to not know at this point. Gwen continues to probe, and Peter gets the shake, spills his coffee and leaves, saying he must have the chills after being in the cold all night. Maybe if he'd read the Daily Bugle in a warm coffee shop like a normal person, and not hung on a web hammock in the freezing cold, he wouldn't have the chills. Stupid boy. And come on, Peter, just tell her! <sighs> Elsewhere, the schemer is hiding in his car, which is covered in snow. Fortunately, it is a specially made car, looks like he nicked it from Nick Fury, that has heating ducts that allow him to cruise the streets easily despite the hazardous conditions. This allows him to seek out his arch enemy. To be fair, the schemer's car is pretty cool. It's a sleek roadster, complete with television and other gadgets, looking like Ed Straker's car from UFO mixed with kit with the dash of the 1957 Chevy Corvette. 
He doesn't know where the kingpin, his actual arch enemy, is, so he hits a gambling den, spoils the game, and lets the goons know to let the kingpin know the schemer is out to bring him down. They do let the kingpin know, but this upsets Vanessa greatly. She wants the kingpin, who she still doesn't refer to by his real name, to give it all up. The death of their son has made her realise this is all for nothing. But the kingpin can't allow this attack to go ignored. There's a lot of good character work here, but it's all very loosey-goosey. Stan should have developed this more, given more time to Vanessa and her dissatisfaction with the kingpin and his career. Did she know about this side of him before they married? Was he a reputable businessman who became involved with crime? Or was he always a made man? Did she initially like the glamour and money and so turned a blind eye to his job? Or was she naive and young and didn't realise what was going on? This could have been Martin Scorsese before Martin Scorsese. Spider-Man, meanwhile, has ran away from his conversation with Gwen, and after looking upon some of the Kingpin's goons, he also looks out by learning of the schemer's car. How did the goons know about that? And then gets even luckier by spotting the car straight away. In a city of, what, 10 million people? What are the odds? The schemer drives his car, complete with new Spider-Man hood ornament, into the river, shedding Spider, and then his car flies out of the river and speeds off back to his destination. A wet and freezing Spider-Man pursues. The schemer arrives at the Kingpin's house, which has no guards or sentries, despite the threat to his life. The schemer neutralises the Kingpin's alarm and simply walks in. Before there can be a Donnybrook, Vanessa intervenes and begs the kingpin not to get involved. She won't be married to a killer. I think that boat sailed a long time ago. Vanessa can't take her eyes off the schema, though. There's something about him. There's no time to ponder. Spider-Man arrives, distracts the kingpin, and the schema makes off with Vanessa. The Kingpin and Spidey have a great fight where an enraged Kingpin literally rips up his entire living room carpet and beats Spider-Man with it. And although Spider-Man ultimately earns a victory, it's only on points. The Kingpin runs when he learns Vanessa has gone. Spider-Man is left alone. No reward, no glory, just bruises. Stan offers up some meta-commentary on how Spider-Man would like life a lot better if everything was wrapped up neatly on the last page, but life doesn't work like that. This isn't a bad middle chapter, but as with a lot of mid-sections, it's a tad flabby. Unless you go dark and tear the story up to spin it in a different direction, the middle parts can always feel a little bit padded and directionless. That's very much the case here. Things do happen, but not enough and not quickly. Issue 85, revealed at last, the schemer's secret, runs the cover copy, and Spider-Man, ensnared in a net, is trapped between an enraged kingpin and the schemer, as Vanessa cowers in the background. It's more greatness from Ramita, with the added promise that the schemer's secret will possibly be the greatest comic magazine surprise of the year. We'll be the judge of that. Credits are as of last issue, but Ramita Buscema and Madman Mooney are simply credited as art by. We apparently pick up exactly where we left off, with the schemer fleeing due to Vanessa recognising something about him, and the kingpin searching for Vanessa. She didn't leave with the schemer, instead hiding in the shadows until the danger had passed. The kingpin is delighted. After all, no one would dare harm the kingpin's wife, least of all the schemer. Vanessa replies, cryptically. And what of the schemer? Well, he's zooming through town in his souped-up schemer-mobile, but the snow causes him to crash because... Well, because he's a bit shit, if I'm being honest. He leaves his car and flees on foot. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Where's Spider-Man, you're thinking? Surely he's still around the Kingpin's house or swinging after the schemer, right? Well, no, because apparently this issue doesn't pick up directly after the last one. All evidence to the contrary. 
Some time has apparently passed for Peter Parker that the narrative doesn't allow for, because Peter is at home studying. Remember, it was late last night, possibly even early morning, when Peter went to visit Gwen and George, but now it's apparently much later the next day. This could have all been avoided if Stan had not used the word meanwhile to describe what Peter was up to. Substitute that word with later, and this transition isn't as dumb, especially as a later event confirms that this has to be later that same day. Anyway, George and Gwen are just passing Peter's apartment in the way that dogs are just passing when you're eating lunch. George wants to know how Peter gets such great shots of Spider-Man. As usual, Peter panics and claims that all this talk has reminded him that he has some prints developing in the dark room. Oh, must go and develop them. And then he dons his Spider-Man costume, rounds the apartment building, enters the window of the living room, and then demands of Gwen and George the location of the hidden rebel base of Peter Parker. Sorry, wrong franchise. Spider-Man reinforces the notion that Peter takes the photos and splits the money with Spider-Man. Gwen stands up to Spidey, telling him Peter isn't here, and to sell the ruse, George and Gwen leave. I am quite literally aghast at this scene. Gwen and George leave. So when Peter comes out of the dark room, is he going to be curious as to where they went? It only works at all, this scene, if George already knows and is covering for Peter and protecting Gwen. Anyway, having ditched the Stacys, Spider-Man decides to continue the search for the schemer. Again, this doesn't make much sense, but we'll go with it. Remember I said this scene had to be later? Well, here's confirmation, lovely listener. The Kingpin is reading a late edition of The Bugle that has Peter's pictures in it. So apparently, the artists slash plotters were paying more attention than Stan, because plot-wise, this makes more sense than as scripted. As plotted... We saw Peter's camera in the last panel of the last issue. George goes to see Peter after seeing these rather unusual pictures in the paper, the implication being Peter can't have stumbled upon photos in the Kingpin's house. Indeed, the pictures show Vanessa helping the schemer escape, something which really hurts the Kingpin, as he feels Vanessa betrayed him. So the pictures are a major plot beat that Stan forgot about. Spider-Man locates the schemer's car, follows the schemer's footprints, and locates the schemer's lure. There's a brief and pretty unspectacular fight, but the schemer escapes thanks to a smoke grenade that conveniently dulls Spidey's spider sense. Elsewhere, George and Gwen return to Peter's apartment, which is, of course, empty. Gwen apparently has a key, and I like to think this is because she's been spending her nights there. This, of course, is brilliant because it renders sins past uncanonical. Gwen, however, is distraught, thinking Spider-Man has kidnapped Peter, but George isn't. He can't be sure Peter didn't leave voluntarily. What he can be sure of is that Peter left because he is Spider-Man, but nobody's saying that at the moment. Spider-Man, meanwhile, has made a web bolo to dissipate the gas and snatches the schemer in a web net. He takes him to the address on the reward poster, where it is revealed to be the Kingpin's apartment, for it is he who offered the reward. Okay, okay, okay. So, the kingpin, known and wanted criminal, offered a reward in a newspaper under his own name and address. That's some massive cojones. Did Spider-Man not notice that this was the same place he was at last night? I mean, it, it could be a different place, but nothing in the RR dialogue suggests that. And again, the reward could be offered under the name Wilson Fisk, as no one seems to know the Kingpin's real name yet. But being the exact same location that Spider-Man took photos of last night would surely have given someone a smidgen of an inkling that the reward wasn't kosher. We then learn the startling secret of the schema. I'll spare you the details, but he's the Kingpin's son, Richard. Now, I'm not sure 
But I don't think this is up there with Bruce Willis as a ghost, she's a man, Rosebud was a sled, etc, 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 as one of the greatest twists of all time. In fact, it's kind of obvious. Even if the trick Stan has to go to to make it work would make a contortionist weep. It also takes Spider-Man out of his own narrative by trapping him in a net and it wraps up a three-issue story with three pages of stultifying exposition. That's not good. Even the ending, the reveal that this is Richard and he's so embarrassed that his father is a mob boss that he's turned against him, is as damp as a wet lettuce. I didn't buy at all that this revelation would render the kingpin catatonic. There is a lot of good material here about fathers and sons, about legacy, about mob bosses living seemingly normal lives that was years before The Sopranos and Goodfellas. And on that level, it's ahead of its time. On the other, this is barely a Spider-Man story. He's only involved because he wants the reward money for Gwen's birthday. And this leads him to do some pretty out-of-character things just to keep him in the plot. Would Peter really not take the schema to the police just to claim a reward? And Spider-Man's ways of finding the schema really do stretch the coincidence factor, even for a comic book. Overall, the boasts on the cover are writing a check this story can't cash. Um, ah well, never mind, eh? There's a curiosity on the letters page. Again, I don't normally mention the letters pages, but in this particular instance, I thought it odd that the letters page had two back-to-back letters from the same person, Eric Schratter. Issue 86, one of Ramita's more iconic covers. Spider-Man clings to a wall, looking over his shoulder. The shadow of a woman falls over him. How can I fight her? Spidey wonders. She's a female copy of myself. This will be Spidey's strangest battle, the cover promises us. Beware the Black Widow. Basema has again legged it for pastures new, leaving this to be a Ramita Mooney illustrative endeavour, with Stan credited as author. Spider-Man swings home from his fight with the Kingpin, still groggy from the pounding he took. Wait, what? You know, far be it from me to question Stan Lee in matters Spider-Man... But the Kingpin and Spider-Man didn't have a fight last issue. Spider-Man didn't have a fight worth mentioning last issue. The schemer didn't lay a hand on him and there was no battle with the Kingpin. Rather, Spider-Man was quickly caught in a magnetised net where he spent the entirety of the last quarter of the issue whilst the schemer bored us all to death with his witless expositioning. Now, Spider-Man was caught in an explosion last issue, the schemer's car, so... Maybe that's what he's referring to. Let's be generous, should we? Regardless, his banging head causes him to swing right by a woman wearing a, quite frankly, ridiculous costume. It's a sexy leather bodice with a purple cape, purple boots and a full-length fishnet body stocking. Her mask looks like those 60s cat's eye spectacles secretaries wore in episodes of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and she has a mane of red hair. It is not the most practical costume ever seen. This is the Black Widow, which we learn as the Widow, secretly the Lady Natasha Romanoff, talks to herself more than Spider-Man does. We are quickly brought up to speed on her backstory as an Iron Curtain spy who was threatened with the death of her husband if she did not do as the state commanded. We learn of her affair with Hawkeye, her affiliation with S.H.I.E.L.D. after her defection, and how this all led to the death of her husband, the Red Guardian. The Widow's backstory, as melodramatic as it's painted here, is quite compelling, and Natasha an interesting character. There's a level of intrigue and danger to her, not only in that she's a Russian defector, giving her a nice, complex relationship with her adopted home and her place of birth, but also her affair and her being responsible for her husband's death. If all that isn't interesting to you, she spends the entire flashback stripping nude, although, sadly, John Romita elects to show us the flashbacks rather than the more enticing prospect of a naked Natasha. Damn that comics code! Nat has turned her back on all that spying shit, living the life of the jet set, but now she's compelled to seek out danger and excitement to forget her past. 
Somehow, she thinks Spider-Man can help her with that and gets to work designing a new costume. The sketch on her drawing board suggests she's a fan of Diana Rigg in The Avengers. Peter, still woozy and off-kilter, arrives home to see George and Gwen still there making small talk with Harry about Peter's frequent disappearances. His face is covered with bruises, despite not getting into any kind of fight at all last issue. Blimey, Stan. Reread a few of your own comics before you write a new one, eh? Gwen, despite initially throwing herself at Peter, is concerned about his face and tells him he's to promise her he'll have nothing further to do with Spider-Man. Peter's ruse last issue having backfired on him. Gwen says she'll be waiting for his call to make that promise. George tries to console Peter, but basically spouts some guff about it being because she's a female. You know, Peter, if you didn't keep any secrets from her, you know, maybe it'd work out better. Peter is now really concerned. George knows more than he's letting on. And as they drive away in Harry's car, Peter frets about losing Gwen and wondering why he's feeling so lousy. Elsewhere, the widow has a new costume, one better suited to the swingy 70s. Yes, the swingy 70s, which no one ever in the history of ever has ever called the 70s. The new suit is a tight leather bodysuit replete with web lines, chain belt and her widow's bite wristlets. She looks like a cross between Emma Peel and Julie Newmar as Catwoman. Suddenly Nat's apartment morphs into a gym and she swings about, practicing with her new toys and gadgets whilst deciding she must prove herself equal to Spider-Man for reasons not adequately explained. She swings around New York looking for him, but Jonah sees her and throws a hissy fit. He throws a further fit when Spider-Man nearly passes out in front of his window. See, Peter is still under the weather and fears he may be losing his powers. So he's decided that to test his theory, he'll go swinging around town. For the second time in this episode, lovely listener, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, isn't that stupid? If he is losing his powers, then he could fall to his death. Yes, yes, dear listener, you are quite correct. This is a remarkably stupid thing for Peter to do. But if he doesn't do it, the widow doesn't meet Spider-Man and we don't have half an issue's fighting to endure. Speaking of stupid, Spidey nips over to see how Aunt May is but peers through her window as Spider-Man, causing the poor old lady to die of fright. Not literally, obviously. In the past few issues, Peter has made the poor woman doubt her sanity and now almost caused her a heart attack. Nice going, Peter. It's at this point the widow strikes. She announces herself to Spider-Man with a widow's bite and then there's a fight. Spidey's illness makes the widow think Spider-Man is an overrated fool who even Woody Allen could take in a fight, according to the dialogue. Spider-Man finally fights back and the Widow flees, having learnt nothing about Spider-Man's powers. She runs off and gets away by literally swinging down a little bit and landing on her apartment's rooftop, which was apparently just below where she fought Spider-Man and just around the corner from Aunt May and just across the road from the Daily Bugle. Is New York really this tiny? Overall pains me to say it, but this issue was a massive waste of time. The Widow has no logical reason to attack Spider-Man. She learns nothing. Spider-Man learns nothing about her. She is here to plug her upcoming solo strip in Amazing Tales, and just because Stan cops to that on page 18 doesn't make it any more palatable. Besides, Amazing Tales would never see the light of day, instead seeing print under the title Amazing Adventures. The last two pages, though, are interesting. Peter agonises over his situation, pondering what if he really is losing his powers. What would he do? He'd finally be normal, which is what he's wanted all this time. But how can he be sure? Well, he finally grows some brains and starts testing his bloods to see what's occurring. But what is it? Why does he hesitate so? Is he afraid that at last he's getting what he wants only to not want it? 
Next issue, Unmasked at last. The setting up of Peter's illness could also have been a lot better. Stan stretches plot contrivances to try and tie it into something that just didn't happen, instead of just saying it was a result of the explosion, which did happen. And the Black Widow stuff is a massive waste of time, but the issue is okay as a read. It's flimsy, makes absolutely no sense, and even the soap opera elements are a drag, but John Romita draws a, a nice Black Widow, so there's that. I suppose. Amazing Spider-Man issue 87 is called Unmasked at Last and has a great cover. I had to tell you, Peter tells MJ, Harry, Gwen and George, his Spider-Man mask in his hands. I can't keep it a secret anymore. Spider-Man's career is over and I'm the only one who could know because I'm Spider-Man. The spectre of Spider-Man lurks in the background. It's a striking and effective cover, but it could have lost some of the overly wordy speech balloons. All Peter needed to say was, I had to tell you, I can't keep it a secret anymore. I'm Spider-Man. That would have got the, the, the gist across just as well as the overly verbose speech balloons on the cover. Art-wise, this issue is by Ramita and Mooney again, and written by Stanley. Peter Parker pours over his microscope, desperate to know the reason for his recent power loss. His vision is impaired, his head dizzy, unfocused. He decides he needs to see a doctor and elects to visit Kurt Connors, as Connors is a friend who owes him a favour or two, and thus will not ask him to remove his mask. Peter's dizziness leads him to struggle with the wall crawling, and so, instead of taking a cab like a normal person, he elects to swing over to Connors' apartment. This seems stupider than wall crawling, as his timing is well off, and for the first time, he's wary of the height. This was really interesting, because Spider-Man has never expressed any aversion to heights before. The implication here being that his powers make it so he's not scared of heights. I'd like to see this explored more, actually. Anyway, Spidey arrives at Connor's place, but it's empty. Connor's has cleared out and moved his family back to Florida. Presumably, he got fed up of being press-ganged into doing science stuff by mobsters. Suddenly, Spider-Man remembers the last few issues worth of subplots, and that tonight is Gwen's birthday party. A party that is already underway. And him, without a gift. Wait a minute. Already underway? I'm not even going to try and work out the timeline of this in the last few issues. In a moment of weakness, Spider-Man breaks into a jewellery store to steal a necklace for Gwen. Before he can commit more than breaking and entering, he realises the folly of his ways. If he does this, he's everything Jonah said he is. Seems a bit weird to me that the ultra-moral Peter Parker would be more concerned by what Jonah would think than the actual illegality of the deed itself. But either way, he repairs the damages as best he can and leaves. As he leaves, he loses his grip and falls to the roof. Has Spider-Man taken his last swing? Stan milks every drop of emotion out of this scene as Peter rips off his mask he's always wondered when he'd eventually call it a day but has fate made the call for him this is actually quintessential Spider-Man stuff and Stan handles it really really well over at Gwen's the party is in full swing Romita lives for these scenes and it's a wonderful gathering with loads of hoot and just a touch of nanny there's a house full of Gwen's student pals we've never seen before and they gyrate in the background as randy robertson and josh entertain the crowd with a guitar and some songs it's nice to see josh again and that he and gwen seem to have made up after their last fight about peter mary jane is gorgeous in a figure-hugging light green mini dress but gwen seems more sedate in her leather native american squaw get-up it's a look gwen is favoring at the moment harry is wearing a double-breasted suit with a cravat. A cravat. Harry, you're 19 years old. And you're wearing... A cravat. I... I... I thought Peter was supposed to be the nerd. Anyway, Gwen frets over Peter, even as Mary Jane tells her no cat is worth getting this uptight about. And so Gwen hits the dance floor. And suddenly... 
MJ wished she'd kept her mouth shut. Because I bet you look good on the dance floor. Dancing like a robot from 1984. Can't beat the Arctic Monkeys. The party concludes and the revellers drift off into the night. Gwen and George are about to bid farewell to Mary Jane and Harry. When who should show up at the door but Peter Parker? And what does he hold in his hand? A red rag? No! No, no, it's Spider-Man's mask. Ramita and Mooney deliver a powerful splash page here. As Peter stands before his friends, face bruised and battered, his head cloudy, his friends stunned. Now, there are two ways to read the following. One, as intended, in that no one here knows Peter is Spider-Man. Or, with the hindsight, that both George and Murray Jane already know at this point, thanks to A, a retcon, in Murray Jane's case, and B, Stan having decided that George has figured it out, which I am going with the assumption that he has at this moment in time. Now, George plays it cool, asking Peter what he's up to and claiming him to be feverish and delirious, almost as if he's covering for him. Murray Jane looks as stunned as anyone and claims, wow, Gwendy, you sure can't pick him. He's either a psycho or a messed menace. But, 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 Murray Jane knew from the beginning, guys. (laughs) See, this is why retroactive continuity has to be skillfully handled. You can't just say that a major story beat, like, I don't know, let's say a previous bad guy has been resurrected from the dead and has been controlling everything, without making sure that that revelation doesn't screw up previous story developments. Now, that's just an example. And in the earliest mentions of Murray Jane knowing Peter is Spider-Man, the writer leaves it ambiguous. This is smart, as it makes far more sense, as far as I'm concerned, to have Murray Jane realise Peter is Spider-Man in the aftermath of Gwen's death. However, another writer established that Murray Jane knew from Amazing Fantasy 15, i.e. from the very beginning. This makes no sense at all, especially when you reread these old stories. As intended, Murray Jane's remark is simply insensitive and a poor attempt at humour. The retcon makes Murray Jane look even more selfish than she normally is. Anyway, Peter leaves swiftly, having made an even bigger mess, and then Gwen, distraught, has to listen as Harry relates a tale that he has heard. Harry tells all of the time Peter pretended to be Spider-Man to fight Dr. Octopus, way back in issue 12. It's a nice callback, but it adds a layer of insanity to Peter that he's done this before. But it's also a head-scratcher. I see what Stan did here. He had to relate this story to give Peter previous, and thus a get-out for later. But using Harry is odd. Who told him this story? Jonah won't have printed it, the police won't have publicised it, and I'm sure Aunt May and Betty Brant didn't tell him. It's possible Flash mentioned it somewhere along the line, but I wonder if someone forgot Harry wasn't in high school with Peter and Stan had to fix it in the dialogue. Peter wanders off into the night and proving once again that despite being a pretty smart guy, he can make some truly terrible decisions, he goes to see a doctor as Spider-Man. Now, sure, he's covering his unusual blood disorder, but really? Aren't doctors under some oath or other to not grass up their patients? Nevertheless, Peter finds a kindly doctor who isn't concerned with who is behind the mask, only that that man is ill and needs help. We need more people like this guy in real life. The doctor, not that one, tells Spider-Man he has the flu. This news instantly cures Peter, Which isn't how medicine normally works, but whatever. And suddenly Peter realises he's made an almighty cock-up. Peter immediately conjures up a plan. But for it to work, he will need the help of Hobie Brown. 
You remember Hobie from issue 79, right? He was the prowler. You know, the window washer who was really a scientist. Anyway, Peter, his face covered in a web mask, but still wearing his yellow turtleneck, brown leather jacket and brown slacks, remember that, drops by Hobie, who is cleaning windows, implying he got his job back after being fired. He gives Hobie his Spider-Man costume and asks if he will appear at a certain place at a certain time. But not to worry, this isn't anything illegal. Hobie agrees, and Peter makes his way back to the Stacy household, where conveniently, Mary Jane and Harry are also hanging out. You know, given the amount that she hangs around, though, I'd have believed Mary Jane was having an affair with George Stacy far more than I bought Gwen having an affair with Norman Osborne. Peter tries to explain his feverish delirium, his flu, and his not knowing what the hell he was saying. Everyone is a little sceptical, until Spider-Man arrives at the window. We'll ignore how Spidey knew where Peter was and assume that Peter mentioned that to Hobie before they split up in an exchange of dialogue that we didn't see. And instead, we'll concentrate on the character's body language. Ramita has all of the characters back up. They are afraid of Spider-Man. George protects Gwen rather sweetly. Gwen protects Peter. Murray Jane looks stunned because how can Spider-Man and Peter Parker be in the same place at the same time? Hobie then goes off script and improvising an entire conversation about how Peter was returning his costume to him and how they split the cash and wait, wait, wait a minute, how does Hobie know any of this? It's only common knowledge amongst Peter's friends. Hobie knows nothing! about the photo deal. He knows nothing about the mask in Peter's hand. And for that matter, why isn't he more surprised to see Peter still alive? Does he not also spot that Peter is wearing the same clothes as the mysterious guy in the web mask who gave him the Spider-Man costume? (sighs) Hobie notices none of this and leaves dropping Spidey's costume on the roof as he does so. Peter cleans up his mess. George is relieved it was all sorted out, and Stan takes a really interesting idea and does bugger all with it. Everything gets wrapped up far too easily. I've been trying to pinpoint exactly where Stan decided that George knows Peter's Spider-Man, but it's pretty cagey even here. Peter and Gwen kiss and make up, and then Peter leaves. Even when it's all gone right, he has a feeling of foreboding. It's a lovely final panel, evocative of the Ditko room, as Peter walks home illuminated only by the street lamp. There's a lot to like here, and a lot that makes you scratch your head. It's a solid idea, this issue, let down by sloppy scripting, and too much time spent farting around with the Black Widow in issue 86, rather than setting up issue 87 story properly. The structure should have been that the splash page reveal of Peter stood before MJ, Harry, George and Gwen in issue 87 was the cliffhanger ending to issue 86 with issue 87 focusing more on the character reactions and Peter's plan to get out of this mess. We see absolutely nothing of how Gwen, Harry, MJ and George react to this news. For Gwen and Harry, it would explain a lot of things. For George, confirmation of what he's long suspected. For MJ, well, MJ already knew. As such, as compelling as the cover and some of the artistic choices are, they are covering for the fact that this is very much a wheel-spinning era for the character. Stan seems scared to move the strip to the next level, even though he clearly wants to. And next issue, he starts getting his teeth back. But that's for the future. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Welcome fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big hang-up. Wherever you're a hang-up, you'll find Spider-Man. Cha! Alright, 
let's uh, let's consult the email bag, should we? Uh, Dan Doherty's emailed in. Hi, Dan. Hi, Andy. Sorry I haven't written for a while. Every time I want to sit down and compose an email, real life kept getting in the way. <laughs> Tell me about it, mate. And you have kept pumping out new episodes. I'm off guard. You know, when I'm on a roll, dude, I'm on a roll. And I love doing this show. This show creates a role because there's always something that you're like, oh, I fancy talking about that or I fancy bringing that to somebody's attention or whatever. There's always something in this show that makes you think, I'll talk about that because it's fun. And because it's me on my own, there's no one to say, no, you can't do that. Ha <laughs> ha. Now I have found the time to write, continues Dan. I've got a lot to catch up on, but I'm going to comment on each episode from the most recent going backwards. Well, that's different. Return of the Caped Crusaders. I've often said that my introduction to comic book superheroes came watching the Ruby Spears Superman cartoon and Batman 66. As a young kid, I always saw the Adam West show as an excellent adaptation of the Batman comics. As I got a little older and the Michael Keaton movie started coming out, I still loved Batman 66. But now... I started reading more of the comics, both old and new, I began to differentiate between different eras. Adam West represented classic Batman of the Golden and Silver Age. Michael Keaton was more like Bronze Age and then current Batman. I never realised there were people who hated Batman 66 until my freshman year of high school. And I was shocked to find out there were certain aspects of fandom that resented Adam West and what his portrayal of Batman did to the character. While I completely disagreed with the notion that Adam West was the worst thing to ever happen to Batman, I can't say I blame them for resenting the fact that for decades, non-fans always saw Batman and comics in general as goofy and campy, completely ignoring the evolution and forward progression of the character following the cancellation of the TV show. This was eventually corrected in the 80s and 90s with The Dark Knight Returns, the 1989 film, and Batman the Animated Series. But following Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, which I consider to be Batman for muggles, the fanbase started to realise that Batman had gone too far the other way. Instead of being too campy, he was now too serious. And it was around this time that people started to reappraise Batman 66 and realise it wasn't that bad. Of course, those who never stopped loving it knew that all along. And that's my long-winded way of saying that these two animated feature films were both long-overdue love letters to the 1966 television series, which had just gone through its own full-circle redemption. Spider-Man Life Story. I'm still not sold on Chip Starsky's writing, since I wasn't a big fan of his spectacular run, but Mark Bagley's art should more than make up for it. From your description, it sounds like an interesting premise, but I have a sneaking suspicion that if I get round to reading it, I'd spend the entire time saying, that's not how I would have done it. That's... I'm going to pause though, because that's interesting. Is that why a lot of people have had problems with all manner of franchises recently? Like there was backlash to, obviously to Star Wars, but there's a bit of a backlash to some elements of Doctor Who and a bit of a backlash to Blade Runner 2049 and etc, etc, etc. And how much of that is us watching this shit and not watching this shit, but actually going, well, that's not how I would have done it. But the bottom line is we're not doing it. That's not our story. Spider-Man Life Story is Chips Dadarsky's take on Spider-Man aging in real time. It's not mine. It's not yours, Dan. It's not anybody's. It's Chips. So you kind of have to buy into that before you read it. And I think I think I think that's where a lot of problems are at the minute. That's not what I would have done. But you're not writing it. I'm not writing it. They're not writing it. He's writing it. I loved Life Story because I, I didn't have any particular notion on what it was going to be other than the premise. I knew the premise and that was it. And I bought it purely on the back of that premise and the fact that it was a finite series and it didn't, you know, it didn't end with to be continued in Spider-Man Life Story 3 and it didn't spin off into Spider-Man the Symbiote Agenda and it didn't do any of that shit. It was six issues, self-contained, one graphic novel, read it, be done. And apparently it's done very, very well in graphic novel format. The first printing of that graphic novel has sold out. Um, it's going back to a second print, so it's not going to be not available. And obviously comic stores may still have it in stock, just because it's out of print at the publisher does not mean it's not available in your comic store. And it's also just been in Comixology's big end of year sale for like two quid or two dollars or whatever, wherever territory you live in so it's easy to get hold of and easy to read and i encourage you to do so just to see what you think about it especially if you get it digitally and it's dirt cheap 
Amazing Spider-Man read-through, continues Dan. After listening to your two recent episodes, I'm relieved to find out that I'm not alone in my feelings on the John Buscema era. They look nice, but the stories are uninspired and overall kind of boring. Ranking the DC-Marvel crossovers. I have no issues with your ranking order whatsoever. I just wanted to say it was nice hearing Daredevil Batman Eye for an Eye by D.D. Chichester and Scott McDaniel get some love. Good. I like that. I think D.D. Chichester's run on Daredevil is quite underrated and Scott McDaniel is a fantastic artist who doesn't get the love he deserves. Who took the super out of Superman? Please don't take this the wrong way. But while your synopsis review of the 1970s storyline was fun and enjoyable, the best part of the entire episode was the epilogue. Well, you talked about Brian Michael Bendis getting rid of Superman's secret identity of Clark Kent. As usual, you hit the nail right on the head, describing exactly why this is such a short-sighted, boneheaded idea. Better than I could put into words. The Ashes of Eden. Nothing more to add, other than quoting one of my favourite passages from the first Shatnerverse novel. The mural swept wondrously around the Great Hall's curved walls, tracing the evolution of humanity's journey to the stars. From Icarus to the Montgolfier brothers, through Apollo, Pathfinder, Cochrane's Bonaventure, and the first joint missions with Vulcan vessels. The mural ended yet didn't end with the USS Constitution, the ship that had set the design for Kirk's own enterprise. There was still room for many more vessels past that one, but the mural itself was deliberately unfinished. Its last fifty meters faded into the wide of the artist's blank canvas. The message was clear. Humanity's journey, like the artist's painting, would never be finished. Kirk couldn't remember what had happened to the artist, though. That's all for now. Hopefully I won't wait so long to write in again. Until then, cheers sincerely, Dan Doherty. Well, thank you, Dan, for emailing it. It is a delight to hear from you, as usual. You've sent another email about Star Wars. I'll cover that next time. So you've got emails for next time. Uh, next, Ben Grimm has emailed in. Hi, Ben. I didn't know you were real. <laughs> Actually, it's Mike Brown. I, I, I do know that Mike Brown's real. Dear Andy, while I can't actually believe this is the first time I'm emailing in to the Palace of Glittering Delights, I've listened to every episode of this and your other main podcasting effort, the Fantasticast, and emailed into the latter a few times now. As wonderful as the Palace invariably is, I guess I just never felt that I had much to contribute. I mean, I could have emailed to say how happy I was that your show gave me my first chance to listen to the Knight Rider theme, which I now adore, but that's a pretty slight missive. No, no, I, I would like that. <laughs> Dear Andrew, love the Knight Rider theme. Cheers, mate. That'd, that'd, do, that'd do fine. Fills an email sack. Your episodes on Marvel DC crossovers and the Batman 66 animated films finally got me off my ass and emailing. I feel like you and I are kindred spirits regarding Batman. I too adore the Adam West show and the caped crusader that's capable of levity and positivity. Frankly, my ideal Batman could range from anywhere from the balanced tone of the Neil Adams run or Batman the animated series to the high camp of the 66 show. It's when you get into the darker stuff where Bruce never cracks a smile and the Joker is invariably up to humorless mass genocide that I tend to tune out. As such, I was thrilled to hear you cover the Captain America Batman crossover, which sounds an absolute joy. Out of all the Marvel DC crossovers I haven't read and don't own, that's probably the one I'd be most excited to track down. Pertaining to that episode, I surprisingly don't think I hold the Fantastic Four Superman story in as high an esteem as you do. Oh, don't get me wrong, it's really good and I adore the concept of each company's universe existing as fiction in that other. I'm just not sure if it's Jürgen's art, as good as it is, just not quite capturing the FF as I imagine them. Or the fact that Galactus transforming, insert character name, into a Herald stories often tend to end with the pat character remembers their true nature because of some sentimental gesture shtick. That was a run-on sentence, but I always felt that I wanted a bit more from the tale. Maybe a reread is due. Getting back to Batman and to bring this email to a close as it's already running long, I'm even more excited to watch the Two-Face animated film as I haven't got around to it yet. If you haven't read them, I'd encourage you to track down the Batman 66 series of comics DC put out a few years ago. I adored the heck out of them and could see a selection forming the basis of another lovely episode of The Palace. Anyway, keep up the good work, Mr. Leyland, emailing or not, I'll be listening. Sincerely, Mike Brown, the listener occasionally known as Ben Grimm. P.S. One minor linguistic co-work. 
Quirk, Captain Quirk, between American and British English. I believe I recently heard you read an email where a listener said they quite enjoyed something you'd done and you took it as being somewhat dismissive. I'm guessing the email was American and meant the reverse. Oddly, when Americans use the term quite as an adjective, we generally use it synonymously with the term very. Not sure how this linguistic disparity came about, but I'm quite curious to find out sometime. And I mean that in the American sense. <laughs> yeah, over here, if something's quite good, it's 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 okay. It's a nice way of saying that it's it's probably a little bit above average. It's it's alright, it's quite good. So I always take it as I mean I know how it's intended, but I've been self-effacing and self-deprecating because I find it funny. Um but I do I, I do look quite good being on a t-shirt. I'd love that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that's it for the email section this time. Um, if you want to email in, it's heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Feel free to do so. I've only got two emails currently in the sack. Dan uh, Doherty sent another one, as I mentioned, and Luke Giaconetti sent me one. But I'm having to call it a day, though, because I've got other stuff to do. Because that's always the way, isn't it? Uh, I'm off. Uh, everything's going to be okay. And if it isn't okay, then it's not over. So we just keep going on until it is okay don't we? Uh, Thank you for joining me and I'll see you next time for 2020. Which sounds like, you know, sounds far too futuristic for me. Anyway, see you soon boys and girls. Take care.